Welcome to the Christchurch Oceanside Podcast, a faith community on Vancouver Island within the Anglican Network in Canada. We invite you to check out our website at ChristchurchOceanside.ca, or if you're on Vancouver Island, join us on a Sunday in the News Bay. Today's message is brought to you by our pastor, Father Ryan Matchett. We hope you enjoy. Bless you. from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, beginning in verse 14 to the end of verse 17. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Well, friends, welcome back here to the Christ Church Oceanside podcast. It's Pastor Ryan here again, and we are continuing our studies of the Gospel of Matthew. We're here in chapter 8, and we've spent a couple weeks now, or I guess last week, on um, this text of Scripture where Jesus comes to Peter's home. Now, we're moving on to this next section. So what we see in the past verse is that Jesus comes in and reorients Peter's family resulting in new relationships with one another because now Jesus is at the center of their home. And as we looked at very briefly last week, we also have the gathering of a great crowd that is coming to find Jesus for freedom, that they too would experience the healing power of Jesus. But what happens in this text, in this this verse here today, is this emphasis on a topic that's going to come up throughout the Gospels. And that is Jesus dealing with the oppression and the possession of demons. It says here that many who were oppressed come to him looking for freedom. And then what Jesus does is he casts out the spirits with a word and heals all who were sick. So before we can get into like the biggest implications of this and and how Jesus does this with just a word, I think we need to ask a question here that we haven't talked about much in our culture today, but I think it's running in the back of our minds. And that is, what do we actually believe about demons and evil spirits? I think there's a lot of confusion here on this topic. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that here in the West, there's a massive downplaying of whether or not 
evil spirits are real and are legitimate and whether or not they should be of any concern for us today. And a lot of that has to do with the historical kind of dawn of what's known as the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment comes right after what's known as the Dark Ages, which is known as kind of like a dark time of little scientific development and improvement. And the Enlightenment is the opposite. It's this resurgence of emphasis on reason and knowledge by way of the study of science. Now, some of the um, impact of that is this uh, downgrading of the supernatural, that we reality is only what can be studied by science or equated with fact and research, etc. And so with that comes this, this clash of cultures in a lot of ways. We have the Western world, which has been influenced greatly by the Enlightenment forming our secular culture. And then we have the supernatural, these uh, cultures that have existed over hundreds, thousands of years that have frameworks of understanding both good and evil and supernatural elements at work within the world today. Now, I don't want to I don't want to be misunderstood that somehow the enlightenment is a negative thing. I think there's a lot of actually really positive beneficial things that have come out of it. A great deal of good comes through scientific advancement. I think a lot of symptoms, for example, traditionally associated with the demonic have found helpful biological and psychological explanations, even cures. I, the first kind of uh, examples that come to mind for me are things like seizures. They come up quite a bit in the gospel stories as a fruit of demonic oppression or possession. Um, sleep paralysis. For those who have experienced that, it feels like a demonic encounter. To wake up being unable to move, it feels like something sitting on your chest and the fear that arises in that. Schizophrenia, hearing other voices within your own head, um, have all benefited from research and from medications and from therapies. Now, we think of all these kind of common examples of where science actually brings a great deal of perspective and help to them. But there's one of which science has found no cure for, which is commonly associated with demonic interaction, and that is left-handedness. I'm just gonna leave that silence there for a minute. No, I'm just kidding, left-handedness is not in my opinion, a sign of demonic activity. But what this has done, I think, is because of this, the scientific improvements and advancements and helpfulness has made us ask the question of like, well, what is legitimate then? If science does work for some of these things, if there's biological and psychological explanations, then have we been getting it wrong all of these generations by thinking that these things have spiritual components to them. And so I think it leaves many followers of Jesus and skeptics who read these texts of scripture and go, how do we make sense of this? Is this just some kind of mythology? 
Or is this historical fact? Did Jesus actually cast out demons? And does Jesus continue to do that today? Does that still happen? Are demons real? Or has scientific progress completely debunked this? Now, there's three areas that have helped me to kind of make sense of this in this post-enlightenment world. That yes, there's scientific advancements. Yes, there's helpful research. And yes, there's even medical interventions that are helpful. But there's also, I think, good reason to think that these spiritual entities and powers and interactions are also legitimate. The first one that has been helpful for me is to just consider global cultures. Um, the philosophical category for this would be mythologies, which I think in some ways can communicate a bit of a, a downgrading as though these are just myths, when in reality, I think they come from legitimate cultural experience and wisdom. But in the non-Western world, what we see is all sorts of very important, valuable stories coming out of different cultures to try and explain the very real phenomena that we experience as humanity in this world. See, a mythology is a collection of stories that a particular culture has believed to be true, which are used to explain the nature of the universe and of humanity. And they often include stories of specific historical individuals, as well as supernatural events or characters. Now, mythologies are not always fully accepted, like canon, as, as fact, but they are viewed as significant for shaping the thinking of a people. It's a way of sharing a common understanding of the world that you then live by together. Because a culture's mythology helps to shape their sense of origin, the world that they live in, the values that they live up to, and the practices and priorities that help give them their sense of purpose. Mythologies are really essential to building community. And in community, a sense of self because it's the foundation of shared language and provides both you as the individual and the community with a shared structure to your existence. So mythologies are not just a psychological need, but they're also a way of, of expressing the facts of what people have been experiencing in this world for, for generations upon generations upon generations, right? To just have a way to say, this is how we believe the world has come to be. This is how we explain what we have all experienced in terms of that there is good and there is evil at, at work in the world and that there's physical and there's, and there's spiritual at work in the world. So how do we make sense of that? So this is where these stories come into play. And I think this is an important testimony to the fact that 90-some percent of the world is not lacking some scientific enlightenment, 
Rather, they're giving witness and testimony to realities of their lived experience that they're trying to create language to describe and explain, to understand how we fit in this world. Now, some common mythological examples. The first one that comes to mind for me is Norse mythology. This is like Viking mythology. And in it, there's characters, spiritual characters, gods, Odin, Thor, Frigg, and Loki. And within Norse mythology, there's a cosmology, an explanation for how the world has come to be. Now, in Norse mythology, it's, it's quite interesting, actually. There's a giant and his brothers, and the brothers slay this giant, and they take his skull, and they, they made the sky, and they set it over the earth with its four sides. Under each corner, they put a dwarf whose names are east, west, north, and south. And the sons, the sons of Bor, flung Emer's brains into the air, and they became the clouds. And the blood became the oceans and rivers and lakes, and the flesh became the land. And in it, in this world of realms, there's nine realms. And earth is referred to as, Miz, as Midgard. And the heavens are kind of like Asgard, are referred to Asgard. They're kind of like a heaven. And there's all these other worlds around it. And this is, this is how the, the people of that time understood their existence and the spiritual powers that were at work in the world for them. Now, Greek mythology is a bit more well known in our culture here in Canada and in the West. We have characters like Zeus and Poseidon and Hera and Hades. And the cosmology in Greek mythology is, is this picture of chaos giving birth to the earth, Gaia, which includes an underworld, which is Tardis, and Eros, love and attraction, and, and a dark figure place at work in the world, Erebus. And so Greek mythology is, is also a great example of these understanding of how the world has come to be, that there are gods, there are spiritual powers at work, and some of them are evil, and that there's an underworld, life after death, that needs to be considered. Now, closer to home, the West is not only a product of the Enlightenment. We also have the influence of North American indigenous mythology. Though there's no singular mythology amongst the unique nations spread across North America, there are areas of commonality. North American spirituality can often be placed within the animist category of belief, common to much of the world's indigenous communities. The belief that human beings, animals, plants, Rocks all have souls, that is, that they are subjects of feeling or consciousness and display intelligence. This influences the way one interacts with the natural world, viewing it as not only natural but as supernatural. There are also spiritual godlike characters. Sakami, for example, the Thunderbird, Kanikalak, the Sea God, Sisiatul, the sea serpent, and Zunuqua or Sasquatch, the cannibal giant. 
There's also a character called Bakwas, which is a green spirit who tries to bring people over to the dead. Now, it might be easy at first to just dismiss these things as strange myths, but I think what we fail to realize is that peoples and cultures are trying to describe that, yes, there's a natural world, like take the beauty of the green forest, but there's also something at work within the world that is seeking to actually actively work to bring people to death. Yes, it's beautiful, but death is always lurking. And so even these, this mythology that includes stories of, say, Bakwas, this green spirit at work within a beautiful world, seeking to bring people over to the dead, they're trying to give testimony and witness to the fact that there is an evil at work in the world and death is not right. Death is not good and needs to be um, cautioned against in children. Now, the cosmology of indigenous mythology includes the world being created by a raven flying over the waters who finding nowhere to land decides to create islands by dropping small pebbles into the water. He then created trees and grass, and after several failed attempts, he made the first man and woman out of wood and clay. In the midst of this cosmology is this idea that this has been designed by someone, by something of the spirit realm, that the physical has, has causation behind it. Ultimately, what we see in world mythologies is this common thread that there's the creation of the earth, there's a nature of the universe that's explainable, a recognition of a physical world and a spiritual world, and that there's personalities in this spiritual world, these spiritual beings, God, gods, spirits, ghosts, etc. And that the nature and personalities of these things includes evil at work within the world. There's a common recognition of that evil and that it's against humanity. It's a threat to humanity. And humanity doesn't have a lot of power over or against these spiritual beings. So the common mythologies then include what humans can and should do and how people should live to protect themselves from evil and deserve good. Included in these mythologies is mediators between the community and the spiritual realm. Priests, shamans, leaders, sacrifices, practices, ceremonies, etc. are all meant to bridge the gap and create protections and garner favors from the spirit world. But they also answer what happens after death. What happens after this life when the spiritual part of humanity loses its physical part? So I find this to be a profound testimony at work within the history of humanity to the fact that there are spiritual things at work in the world that need explanation, that are asking for it. And science's kind of seeming dismissal of that feels also dismissive of the human experience. And I think this is the second part, because in the Western world, products of the Enlightenment 
I feel like this small privileged minority saying we've learned more, we know better, and saying to the rest of the world, you're foolish for continuing to believe in this, is itself a folly that privilege is prone to. In addition to global mythologies, the other thing that I find very convincing is the current experiences that we have as humanity with something that we can only describe as an inhuman evil at work within the world. I myself have had experiences that I cannot explain in any other way. That there's evil, there's evil that humans commit. We know that, we understand that. But there also seems to be a greater evil at work in the world. An evil that even encourages and entices human evil. An evil that goes beyond just human doings. In my own story, one of the most profound experiences that I had that really shed light on the reality of this was came at a time when I was teaching to a group of young adults. In mid-teach, I was teaching on the father's love. A young girl who had just started to join us, who had just come from Africa and moved to Canada, began to first cry softly, then began to sob with deep sobs of grief, and then began to wail in pain. At this time, we felt it was best to give her privacy. And so a group of loving peers, individuals, escorted her out of the room where she could be in a more safe place to process that emotion. But we were meeting in a gym at the time when we had this big kind of curtain that closed off the gym to the rest of the church. And I could hear as I was teaching that it was escalating. It was moving beyond grief into something more and more and more to the point where I had to pause my teaching and say, I'm going to have to go and uh, engage in this situation. So you'll have to excuse me. When I came out, I came to find the girl surrounded by a couple friends of hers, as well as one of our male leaders. And it had moved beyond unconsolable to something different. She had taken on a very aggressive form. She was walking around on her hands and her knees, or sorry, hands and feet on all fours, and was growling in uh, animal-like noises and speaking in a voice that was not her own, a voice that was much lower than she seemed capable of and was uttering threats. Now, as I was approaching, the group was trying to calm her down, and she switched from just uttering threats in this deep, guttural voice to then attacking the male leader. Now, in conversation that happened afterwards, what we came to understand was that this is a very strong individual. He's a close friend of mine. And he said he did not have the ability to resist her level of strength. And she was not a big, a big woman. She was not muscular or she was quite small. And she began to attack him and overpower him. Now, I was forced to engage at this point and just through a few words of saying, this needs to stop now in Jesus' name, she disengaged from the violent 
aggression that she was showing towards this friend of mine, and then crawled into a corner, into a more defensive posture, but still on all fours, crawling around the room and speaking in this low voice. Now, it just took bringing the name of Jesus into the situation to bring a sense of calm and peace to it. But this ended up not being my first experience with what I would now call an evil spirit or the demonic at work within someone's life. And as I've traveled the world and um, served in different communities and cultures around the world, you just come to see that spiritual evil is a very real reality. Part of my job as a priest is to do house blessings and cleansings. And in these homes, I've experienced all kinds of otherworldly activity from stomping or banging or crashing of items to weird presences to suddenly feeling sick and disoriented as we try to address spiritual entities that exist within a home, it's often tied to sinful practices. So in addition to global mythologies, there's also the very human experiences that we have, that we can feel, that we can sense when there's an evil beyond, there's a threat at work within the context, or maybe the person that we're interacting with, where something just feels slimy or gross or scary. We feel this threat at work within the world. The third thing, and really the most important for me, is the Old and New Testament scriptures. We see all through the Old Testament that there are different examples of the reality of spiritual evil at work within the world, from tormenting spirits to the temptations of Adam and Eve by Satan, that we see these at work, that there's idolatrous um, spirits at work in the world, that when worshipped require sacrifice of children and self-harm and sexual deviancies and rape and violence. This is chronicled through human history in the Old Testament. But when we see the New Testament as Jesus dawns upon the earth and his salvation work, we see those cases escalate, and we see the impact that they have upon people, that these spiritual beings are not only real, but their impact is real on people. And that there's not just evil, but there's also angels sent as messengers by God. So the scriptures give us a window and, a, I think, a, a solid explanation for the fact that the spiritual world, the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of darkness are very real and very active. That there are personal specific beings at work within the spiritual realm, and that they have impact on the physical world. So when we see this at work within the New Testament, we see Jesus interacting with them. It helps make sense of our experiences. So now that we've kind of given some, you know, three proofs, so to speak, of global mythologies, the inhuman evil at work within the world, and the Old and the New Testaments, 
bearing witness to this fact and Jesus himself um, interacting with them. What we see then in this particular scripture text is something beautiful. And that is that Jesus has authority over spiritual evil. And this is really the good news of this text. That Jesus has authority over them as God because he's fully divine. He also has authority over them as a righteous man, a new Adam, who is not subject to the temptations and the power and the influence of evil. That Jesus also has authority over them as one full of the Spirit. And all of this, Jesus has complete authority over evil spirits to the point where he can cast them out, their influence, their power, their impact, and the, the pain that they cause upon people, he can cast them out, how? With drama? By knowing their names, and scaring them away with holy water, by beating them with a Bible, by intimidating them or matching them in their intensity. No, none of these things. Jesus casts them out with proficiency, easily. Because of who he is, Jesus casts them out with a word. And I think this is the key piece we want to take away from this. Yes, the demonic is real. Evil spirits are a reality in this world. And next week we're going to talk a bit more about what oppression looks like, how demonic impact looks in our lives, and how ultimately Jesus is the salvation. But before we do so, what we need to have is a recognition to go, yeah, this is real, but Jesus is more far more significant and important, that he has full and complete authority over these spirits to cast them out with the gentleness and the kindness of a word. C.S. Lewis put it really well when he said this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And I think this is fair of the biblical position, is that it's viewed that demonic spirits are real. We should take them seriously, meaning we should not dabble in this stuff, mess with this stuff, or pretend it doesn't exist, but rather we need to place our focus entirely upon Jesus to be sufficient over them, to conquer them, and to cast them out with a word. Ultimately, what the New Testament scriptures do is calls humanity to take it seriously, but to respond and take on the responsibility by believing in Jesus to be sufficient for it. So we, what we want is a high view of Jesus, a serious view of spiritual evil that it's real, and an understanding of our responsibility to believe in Jesus to conquer them. We'll unpack more of this 
um, what demon oppression looks like this coming Sunday. But this is a great place to start, is to go, there is an unexplainable reality here that the Bible makes sense of, that evil spirits are legitimate and real and have real impact upon humanity. But Jesus, Jesus can cast them out with a word because of his authority, because of his presence, because of his power, and because ultimately for his love for us. So my friends, I realize it's a bit of a tough conversation. There's a lot to think about on this, but this is really the way of Jesus for it. And Jesus casts them out with the world.